I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, an artist and psychoanalyst in Sweden who works with people internationally, and this is episode 258 of Rendering Unconscious Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Dawn Grief, a forensic psychologist and psychoanalyst practicing in New York City. Rendering Unconscious is a labor of love that I put together with no support from outside sources. All support comes from the listeners and fans, and I make all episodes of Rendering Unconscious available, streaming on all the major podcasting platforms. I don't post any content uh, exclusively on the Patreon that, that has to do with the podcast. I don't hide anything behind paywalls in that way. I want all of the information available to everyone. That being said, I do appreciate support from fans and listeners and guests of Rendering Unconscious Podcast. I do my best to spread the word about psychoanalysis and beyond, and it's really nice to see people support me back in return. You can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com, Vanessa23Carl. You can also join Substack, Substack is vanessa23carl.substack.com. Carl and I do write about our creative practices and magical work once a week at our Patreon and Substack for $5 a month and up. You get access to that. Your support of Rendering Unconscious podcast means the world and also helps to support my other creative work. So thank you to our Patreon community. You can also follow me on social media at rawsin underscore at Twitter and Instagram and Dr. Vanessa Sinclair 23 at TikTok. Links to everything can be found in the liner notes accompanying this episode and at renderingunconscious.org. I thought I would start by uh, um, explaining how we connected because uh, I think it's uh, very relevant. Um, you had uh, posted something on uh, Das Unbehagen mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it was uh, an article about psychoanalysis, and you wrote that uh, you, this was regarding psychoanalytic training institutes, and you wrote that you see them as, quote, structures of hierarchy that are fundamentally opposed to psychoanalytic theory and practice, as psychoanalytic practice involves the locating and breaking down of such systems of oppression that the individual has internalized and identified with that were originally imposed upon them through expectations of parents, society, et cetera. So that, um, as I think I uh, told you, deeply resonated with me uh, for several reasons. Um, seven years ago, uh, and I, I uh, told you uh, this, um, some colleagues of mine and I, all graduates of the William Allenson White Institute uh, in New York City proposed changes to their uh, system of appointing and promoting analysts to become uh, training and supervising analysts. And uh, uh, after 
they stonewalled the presentation of our proposal. And I say, yeah, uh, they, I'm talking about the, uh, what's called the Council of Fellows. It's a group of analysts who make decisions about changes to the system. Um, they, uh, they stonewalled it and then eventually they listened to us and uh, there was stiff resistance and, uh, and uh, antipathy, anger, uh, open hostility. Um, I had uh, written a substantial part of the proposal, uh, especially a part about our, our guiding philosophy. Um, and I thought it was uh, uh, thoughtful, sensible, uh, and represented a, an incremental change, not a, a radical one. So I found the response from this uh, uh, Council of Fellows uh, very uh, disheartening. And I came to realize uh, that the, the Institute was quite conservative and stuck in its ways. Uh, and I thought that the people in power uh, who were primarily interested, uh, were primarily invested uh, in preserving what they saw as their self-interest. Uh, I think it was kind of narrow, narrow self-interest. And what I mean by that is, as training analysts, they were more likely uh, to get referrals. Their status, uh, you know, within that uh, more conservative world, uh, where they had that had a higher status, and and they and it made them believe that they were elite analysts, uh, which I and others on, who, who helped write this proposal thought was patently absurd uh, for, for many reasons, uh, which I won't go into that, but um, <clears throat> I'd like to, uh, to uh, uh, read a bit of the proposal. Um, we, we called it a proposal for progressive reform of the appointments and promotions process. And uh, this is uh, a part that I, I wrote. Um, from its inception, the White Institute has been at the vanguard of pivotal innovations in psychoanalysis. Its founders rejected orthodox Freudian psychoanalysis because they found it narrow-minded and inflexible. Along with later white graduates, they pioneered new ways of conceptualizing and practicing psychoanalysis, which over the course of several decades led to the interpersonal and relational turn in our field uh, contemporary white analysts have continued this tradition of creating original theories and inventing novel ways to apply them in practice. In so doing, they epitomized an enduring truth about psychoanalysis, which was succinctly expressed by Stephen Mitchell when he wrote, quote, psychoanalysis is a vibrant clinical process that continues to reinvent itself, finding new meanings for its methodology as the experience and concerns of its participants change and develop. Then uh, went on to say, with White's proud history, progressive ideals, and exemplary Division I training program in mind, we believe the time is ripe for a fundamental change in the system of appointing training and supervising analysts. In the spirit of ongoing reinvention, we offer the following proposal for reforming our appointments and promotions process. So our proposal, basically uh, involved giving candidates uh, much greater freedom to choose who they wanted 
as their personal analyst. Um, so, and then went on to, to explain that increasing candidates' freedom and range of choices is, ba is based on our belief that candidates are best able to determine which analyst they will work with most effectively. Uh, it was also based on um, a survey that was sent out to candidates and graduates who all uh, supported a change in this system and, and for candidates to have uh, greater freedom of choice. So if candidates have a large pool of potential analysts from which to choose, uh, we wrote, they will have the best chance of finding analysts who suit their particular wishes, needs, tastes, and personalities. Moreover, increasing a candidate's opportunity to find a compatible analyst is in keeping with psychotherapy outcome research, which has consistently found that the match or quality of the relationship between patient and therapist is the best predict predictor of therapeutic success. It's also congruous with core principles of interpersonal and relational psychoanalysis, which emphasize the uniqueness of each analyst-patient dyad. Mm -hmm. Our proposal is guided by a different philosophy than inheres within the traditional model, in which a committee of senior analysts chooses a relatively small pool of analysts whom they judge suitable to supervise and analyze candidates. We view this system as overly influenced by an older, far more hierarchical analytical analytic culture that was consonant with the broader culture in which it originated, but is now out of step with sociocultural changes and those within psychoanalysis that accord greater authority and responsibility to those with less formal authority, students, patients, and trainees for making decisions in which their vital interests are at stake. Our proposal is also guided by the belief that a relatively small group of training and supervising analysts prescribed by senior analysts on the appointments and promotions committee tends to maintain more ideological conformity in the Institute than is healthy for a field, uh, i.e. psychoanalysis, that while deeply rooted in theory and clinical principles, also wants to maximize its openness to change and creative reinvention. White's appointment and promotion system is predicated on the assumption that vig rigorously vetting applicants will enable the committee to determine who are the best analysts and which analysts are not good enough to treat or supervise candidates. In sharp contrast, we believe that the vast majority of psychoanalysts who have trained at the White Institute and at other reputable institutes are great psychoanalysts and great supervisors with some patients and supervisees, very good or good enough with many patients and supervisees, and not good enough with others. For this reason, we believe the notion that some analysts are superior in an absolute sense is spurious. Um, so what... Uh, I think what what uh, uh, what what we wrote in that uh, uh, proposal uh, certainly is is you know consonant with uh, with the uh, your comment that I read earlier, but mm -hmm. it, it's also I think um, I don't know, consistent with the guiding force of uh, behind Das Unbehagen, um, and 
it dovetails with other uh, other things that I've uh, that I've written um, and and with my clinical work. Um, so, uh, and I, I could, uh, you know, I'd like to to go into that, but maybe take a uh, a, a pause here to see if you. Well, I look forward to hearing what you go into. I'll just say that, I mean, that was beautifully put and so thoughtful and well explained. And, you know, it, it, this is one of the more, you know, seen as one of the more progressive institutes. And that's what's so kind of interesting as well is like, you know, I went to New York Psychoanalytic Institute. So it's kind of like ground zero for the institutes in New York. And then so many uh people have left and broken away and started new institutes. And it's so frustrating to see these kind of hierarchies, you know, rebuild themselves even in the more progressive institutes as well. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that that's what uh, uh, really was so disappointing to me. Um, I mean, I, I went to, uh, I, I was uh, trying to decide uh, when I decided to do analytic training between white and NYU postdoc, uh, New York Psychoanalytic um, wasn't, uh, uh, I, I would not have considered going there because I I had the feeling, I don't know if this was true, uh, that uh, uh, psychologists, uh, I'm a psychologist, uh, would be, um, uh, even to this day, uh, or this was, you know, 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago when I did analytic training, uh, second-class citizens Absolutely. to uh, to MDs. Mm -hmm. um, I know that was the case in. Uh, I had moved down actually from uh, from Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, to to start analytic training in 1999. I'd been practicing as a psychoanalytic psychologist for many years in uh, in Cambridge, um, and the uh, uh, the Boston Psychoanalytic Institute. Um, and uh, Psychoanalytic Institute of New England, uh, which uh, became defunct eventually. Those were the, you know, the 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 traditional institutes up there. Uh, the Massachusetts Institute for Psychoanalysis was uh, the more progressive institute. Um, and uh, you know, I, I would not have considered going to either Boston Psychoanalytic uh, or or Pine uh, because of you know, that very reason. So, so white, you know, was kind of a breath of fresh air when I, uh, when I did my training and, uh, you know, and, and felt very good about, uh, about most of the, the training that I got there. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, you know, white also joined the, uh, uh, the American, mm -hmm. um, became part of the American and it may be that they, uh, they became more conservative after that. Um, it wouldn't be uh, surprising. Um, but uh, in either case, that was, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's what you said, you know, here, a, a supposedly progressive institute, um, you know, is very, uh, as I said, uh, conservative at, uh, in, in some ways, in some ways it is progressive, you know, but uh, this Just was- with these structures. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And that's something maybe we should mention a little bit, too, because maybe people don't know about this kind of history with psychologists having to, like, fight for our rights to become psychoanalysts. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, the uh, 
there was a lawsuit, uh, um, you know, uh, against the, um, uh, I guess it was against the American psychoanalytic and that uh, uh, for, I don't know if it was restraint of trade or monopoly or what the legal basis was, but the psychologist won and the institutes had to open, you know, become open to, uh, uh, to, um, uh, to psychologists. But, uh, you know, I'm thinking back to about, uh, famous psychologist, psychoanalyst, Roy Schaefer, mm-hmm. uh, uh, trained at one of the traditional institutes, the Western New England, uh, Institute in New Haven. And he was, I believe, considered a research candidate. Psychologists, uh, it was hard enough to to be accepted, but uh, I think he was accepted as a research candidate and wasn't allowed to see patients. Um, I mean, just It's amazing to think of things like that, like Roy Schaefer not being allowed. (laughs) Wow. Exactly. Yeah. Um, So it's, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it does make me think, and I'm sure, uh, other people have said this, uh, you know, that psychoanalysis, uh, at least, you know, mainstream psychoanalysis is behind the rest of the culture in terms of uh, pr- progress. And, um, you know, it's, uh, uh, and and that's why, you know, what's happening, what's been happening with uh, uh, Das Anbehagen and, uh, and other um other groups and journals is so uh valuable and 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 great i mean younger you know analysts are are getting uh kind of reared in a in a much more progressive uh culture and at least you know exposure to uh progressive progressive uh ideals and and ways of thinking about psychoanalysis ways of practicing that you know that we, we didn't uh, we didn't have access to uh you know back uh, as 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 recently as 20 you know 30 years ago mm-hmm. so, so hey, even 10 15 years ago <laughs> i guess that's right when mm-hmm. when when did un does unbehagen uh, get started we started in 2012 okay so 11 years ago mm-hmm. yeah yeah so um so uh i can uh move on to some of the other Please things do. so i've been uh uh working on a uh a piece um uh called quarreling with culture and the value of discontent and um I uh I begin it with an epigraph that that I that I love um and the epigraph uh is um uh quote the strength of resistance derives from even further back within us than the drive towards freedom and uh Nadine Gordimer uh wrote that uh she was a South African novelist who won the Nobel prize um and uh um, in this uh, uh, in this um, piece, I'm calling it a piece because originally it was an article, uh, and I've expanded it, and now I'm um, I'm 
working towards making it into a, a short book. Um, so uh, it's um, I I um, well, let me just read uh, just a, a little bit, and uh, and then we can talk about it. Okay. So Freud viewed discontent as an, in, an inevitable consequence of the clash between our intrinsic nature and culture. Yet, he did not fully recognize the adaptive value of discontent and quarreling with culture, right? nor our inherent affinity with culture. So in this, uh, in this piece, which I think of as both a counterpoint to and an extension of civilization and its discontents, I show that our relationship between the self and culture involves an ongoing negotiation between two deeply rooted longings, the wish to be part of and the wish to stand apart from culture. And I propose that creating a viable balance between these longings poses a major psychological challenge throughout life. So I look at the, the centrality and the significance of the self's struggle with culture, and I suggest that the ability to quarrel with culture and to value discontent and make use of what I what I refer to as adaptive apartness plays an essential role in everyday experience, emotional suffering, psychological development, and therapeutic change. I think that it also mobilizes resistance to social norms, beliefs, values, and practices that that stymie psychological growth and uh, and um, norms, beliefs, values, and practices that that perpetuate uh, a myriad of uh, forms of social injustice. And I think that understanding these issues can help psychoanalysts validate and fortify patients' efforts to revise and renegotiate or transform their relationship with forces that that thwart uh, both personal and, and cultural change. Um, so to go back to Freud, Freud was torn about civilization. Uh, he was one of it's discontent, it's discontents, uh, the term he used in the title of his book. According to Lionel Trilling, who was a, uh, a literary critic and a, a, a novelist, a professor, Freud had uh, a quarrel with culture, uh, and he sought to establish, Freud tried to, tried to establish a place for the self to stand apart from culture. However, uh, his primary emphasis was on the need to accommodate to culture. 
So as a consequence, the self's adverse relationship to culture has gotten insufficient attention within psychoanalysis. That is clearly changing uh, within the last 10 years or so. Um, so um, in, in, this, uh, in this work, I, uh, I, I try to show with clinical vignettes and biographical uh, vignettes and uh, parts of, of, uh, of, of novels, I try to show the therapeutic value uh, for both patients and analysts of discontent, of quarreling with culture, and, uh, and again, what I refer to as adaptive apartness, which I'll explain a little bit more. And um, uh, so I also think, and this is something I, I write about too, that recognizing what I'm calling our dual, our dual relationship to culture, wanting to be a part of culture and wanting to be apart from it, uh, deepens our understanding of the history and the role of psychoanalysis within our culture, including its heretical dimensions. And I kind of, I trace the history of psychoanalysis and how it's fluctuated, gone back and forth in terms of the relationship between psychoanalysis and culture and how at times early on in the history of psychoanalysis, it did represent a more radical uh, point of view. Um, and at other times, uh, particularly with the advent of ego psychology in the, in the, uh, in the 1950s in the US, it represented a more normative uh, institution and force. Um, so um, that's a little bit about uh, about that. I can I can come back to that. Um, I'm uh, I'm going to jump around a little bit uh, here. I saw the movie Barbie mm -hmm. uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, um, and I read uh, there was a. a an excellent review of the movie uh, in the New Yorker by uh, Richard Brody. And I was struck by some of the things he said, uh, which I think, uh, which I'll, I'll just read a couple of uh, things that stood out for me. He, he said that Barbie is, uh, quote, about the intellectual demand and emotional urgency of making pre-existing subjects one's own. And it advocates for imaginative infidelity, the radical off-label manipulation of existing intellectual property. Moreover, it presents such acts of reinterpreting familiar subjects as a crucial form of self-analysis, a way to explore one's own self-image and to confront the prejudices and, in and inequities built into prevailing top-down interpretations of them. Barbie, in other words, is a film of the politics of culture and by extension of the need for a creative rebellion to re-estrange the familiar for the sake of social change. Uh, 
I was uh, really taken by that, uh, both the concept of creative rebellion and re-estranging the familiar for the sake of social change to occur. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that that discontent uh, and and quarreling with culture uh, plays a fundamental role uh, role here, um, as does standing apart, having distance, uh, in in order to examine the the reasons for one's discontent. Um, you know, the 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 speech that a lot of people have, uh, uh, you know, were taken by was uh, America uh, Ferreira's uh, talking about how it's literally impossible to be a woman. And, you know, she's very eloquent. Um, and I think one of the takeaways for me is that it is possible to be a woman if one is able to, as in, in, in the words I'm, I'm using, to quarrel with culture, to experience discontent, and, and to reject, ultimately to reject the impossible double binding standards that she, uh, you know, elucidates. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, whoever wrote this, uh, whether it's Greta Gerwig or I'm not, I'm not sure, uh, you know, if it was a team effort or what, but whoever wrote it is, is standing apart, um, you know, is experiencing discontent, is quarreling with the culture and is standing apart. And, you know, you have to be in order to perceive what, uh, you know, what, what, what's perceived in this, uh, eloquent, uh, statement. Um, uh, I mean, I, 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 I have actually have the statement in front of me, but I'm not sure I need to, uh, to read it. Most people I think will probably be who've seen the movie will, will know what I'm referring to. Um, so, um, let's see. So I, just one example about the heretical dimension of psychoanalysis. One, one heretic or one example. Um, so this was something I'd written, uh, uh, years ago in another, uh, paper that I gave at a conference. Um, I wrote, uh, in an age dominated by what Jonathan Franzen referred to as quote, instant culture in which speedy, efficient communication has become the gold standard, psychoanalysis provides a way to push back against or resist social and commercial forces that threaten to turn us into electronic Stepford wives. Psychoanalysis is, quote, slow therapy and represents a dramatic alternative to more popular mental health treatments such as CBT and pharmacotherapy. As virtual communication continues to proliferate and the boundary between public and private space continues to erode, psychoanalytic therapy offers refuge and relief from a hyperkinetic world in which space and time to reflect and introspect are in short supply. While psychoanalysis has always had countercultural dimensions, during the latter part of the 20th century, 
it came to be widely viewed as a conservative ideology and treatment that helps people adapt to reality and function better in society, thereby promoting social conformity and preserving the status quo. However, psychoanalytic ideas and values were rarely viewed as representing a challenge or critique of the dominant culture, and psychoanalytic treatment was not often seen as an agent of social change or even as a way to help people take risks and find their own way to create richer, more meaningful, and gratifying lives. While psychoanalysis can be seen as having deeply countercultural roots and dimensions, paradoxically, it also embodies quintessential American democratic values and ideals, which is something Jill Gentile's work addresses. Finally, psychoanalytic treatment provides a remedy for a central human challenge that arose about 400 years ago, one with which philosophers, novelists, Freud himself, and intellectuals like Lionel Trilling grappled, namely the universal wish to stand apart from culture and deeply engage with culture. So I'm going to just give two biographical, biographical examples of uh, people, I think, who've negotiated what I'm describing as a central psychological challenge, uh, standing apart from and deeply engaging with culture. Uh, the first one is Michelle Obama. I think she provides a fitting example of a versatile, fluid self. This is... Uh, part of what I've uh, written in Quarreling with Culture, The Value of Discontent. As First Lady, she moved seamlessly between traditional conventional modes of behaving and non-traditional unconventional ways. As Amy Davidson wrote in The New Yorker, quote, her iconoclasm gains strength from its fusion with irreproachability. She has been cheerfully scrupulous about White House traditions and rituals, including such niceties as designing what will be known as the Obama China. Davidson also observed a more un unorthodox dimension in Miss Obama. When driving around with her, she played carpool karaoke, singing Get Her Freak On, and in mentoring girls and in speeches she gave at historically black colleges, Davidson wrote, Miss Obama revealed what, quote, might be her central precept, never believe that there is a room you have no right to walk into, end quote. For a first lady, let alone for an African-American woman in our culture, Miss Obama's playfulness, self-confidence, and healthy sense of entitlement are iconoclastic and depend on her ability to defy and challenge conventional norms. Miss Obama is so widely admired and liked, I believe, because she has a wonderful ability to, to traverse these two worlds. Canadian novelist Margaret Atwood exemplifies the way in which living apart from culture, in her case, isolated in nature, far away from civilization, 
can lead a person to develop a perspective that enables them to challenge conventional norms. In a New Yorker profile, uh, Rebecca Mead writes that Atwood, quote, spent formative stretches of her early years in the wilderness, end quotes, where her father, an entomologist, was stationed at insect research stations. <laughs> Mead notes that, quote, Atwood's early years in the forest endowed her, endowed her with a sense of self-determination and with a critical distance on codes of femininity an ability to see those codes as cultural practices worthy of investigation, not as necessary conditions to be accepted unthinkingly. The capacity for quizzical scrutiny underlies much of her fiction. Not accepting the world as it is permits Atwood to imagine the world as it might be. So, um, Atwood's extended periods of isolation in the natural world, as I see it, as, as, as a child, provided fortuitous circumstances for her to develop this uh, a critical distance from certain cultural practices or codes. Um, access to these this, to states of mind in which we have distance from soci sociocultural norms, which can fortify us to resist being, quote, influenced by external reality, end quote, as Winnicott put it, doesn't depend on any particular activity, physical distance from civilization or isolation. It can occur through being alone or with others, solitude or dialogue, or a combination of the two. Psychoanalytic therapy constituted by a relationship consisting of both solitary reflection and dialogue can facilitate access to these realms of experience and help people achieve a critical distance from cultural norms and establish what I think of as an adaptive apartness. Uh, so talk about um, an aspect of my practice where I've seen uh, some of this play out. So, I've treated several patients who viewed internet uh, child pornography. Um, I should say internet porn that included images of prepubescent children. Uh, I have a forensic practice and I've, I've been evaluating sexual offenders uh, for uh, uh, about 30 years. And, um, uh, and, Part of uh, as as part of my work, I've had the opportunity to treat uh, occasional uh, patients. So these patients who uh, I'm referring to, who looked at uh, child pornography, usually viewed themselves as uh, deviant, despicable perverts, and they felt deeply ashamed about their attraction to children. They came to think of themselves in this way, in part because it's what they read or heard in the media. Uh, I would typically tell them that it was understandable that they had this debased view of themselves because in our culture, it's common to dehumanize those with so sexual attraction to minors. 
these patients' self-images and oftentimes their feelings of, sh of shame and their fear of getting close to other people lest they find out their secrets uh, were powerfully, or I should say are powerfully shaped by our culture's demonization of sexual offenders. In order to see themselves differently as individuals with psychological problems that need to be addressed, but which do not define them, they needed to gain a vantage point outside the commonplace reflexive view and realize that their self-loathing, self-condemnation was shaped in part by a culture, by our, our culture. Um, attaining a more realistic and nuanced view of themselves, I believe, depended on their ability to quarrel with culture. As I put it, quote, viewing sex offenders as human violates a culturally normative view and therefore requires overcoming the culturally shaped and reinforced tendency to see themselves as monsters. Only by challenging conventional wisdom did they develop a more psychologically complex and empathetic understanding of themselves. This often included the recognition that their attraction to children was related to interpersonal rejection, social isolation, trouble establishing relationships with peers, emotional identification with children, protection of vulnerability, reenactments of early childhood abuse, and attempts to resume thwarted development. Even when these patients were never convicted of crimes and therefore were not designated as sexual offenders, this didn't prevent them from seeing themselves as pariahs. In fact, it sometimes reinforced and perpetuated their degraded self-concept. In some cases, they felt guilty about getting off scot-free, and we discovered that they were unconsciously punishing themselves for what they viewed as their moral progressions. One thing I should have uh, mentioned uh, sooner is that these um, individuals never acted uh, on their attraction to children in a uh, to towards actual children. They never, they never uh, touched a child. They never tried to touch a child. Uh, they, um, they sought out, uh, images, um, which, you know, is illegal, uh, but it's a, you know, it's a non-contact offense. It's a, uh, you know, uh, a very different kettle of fish. Um, and is this in your forensic work? Say it again. Is this in your forensic work or? So I have two components. So the main, so I, for years, I've been evaluating sexual offenders readiness for, uh, readiness to, to come back into society. These are men who serve their criminal sentences and they've been civilly committed for an indeterminate period of time to a treatment center. A, a secure treatment center. It's it. They they look like prisons, and for all practical purposes, they are. But because they were considered uh, to be likely to reoffend, they were committed uh, civilly for an indefinite period until uh, a judge or a jury decides that they are uh, safe to re-enter society. So my job 
was to evaluate them and give my opinion about whether they're uh, safe to re-enter society. So um, that's the main component of what I've been doing. I've also treated some offenders uh, who have viewed child porn. Um, actually, I've also I've treated at least one offender who did commit a hands-on offense with uh, with adolescents. Um, so, but I'm using the, what I'm uh, talking about with uh, uh, you know with the sex offenders uh, or with the men whom I've I've treated. Um, these are uh, these are not men uh, who've been civilly committed. Uh, I think one of them. Uh, let's see. Let me just think. Yeah, these they, actually these are men who never did go to prison. They the uh, they were not uh, arrested. They they were you know they were discovered by the police and they had their computers taken away and the images. Uh, you know. Uh, and there was a chance that they would be uh, arrested, um, and we—they were referred to me by by their attorneys, um, and it turned out in both cases that the uh, the state, uh, the attorney general's office, dropped dropped its uh, its case. They were very lucky. I know other people uh, who were arrested and uh, convicted and spent. Uh, some years in prison for um, internet child pornography. Um, so, uh, and I and I get into one particular case in uh, in uh, in what I'm writing. Um, I talk about how the in American society, uh, sexual interest in children, whether it involves actual contact with children or not, is seen by many as tantamount to pedophilia. It's deviant and perverse, and it commonly elicits rage, hatred, and uh, sadism. Um, such reactions are very understandable. The need to protect children is a deep human need. Uh, perpetuating our genes and our species depends on it, uh, but not all sexual interest in children is alike. Um, most people probably don't know and perhaps don't care that a person who looks at images and never touches a child is not a pedophile. Um, so I know that these attitudes towards, uh, you know, towards people who, um, you know, who look at images of, of children uh, are common because I encountered them in my work evaluating and uh, occasionally treating sexual offenders. I even felt them myself when I learned of the things perpetrators uh, had done to children, now I'm talking about contact offenses, I felt scorn, uh, contempt, rage, and hatred. So I expected others would have similar feelings. As a forensic psychologist, I was asked to render an opinion about whether formerly incarcerated sexual offenders who were civilly committed for an indeter indeterminate period of time were likely to reoffend if they were released into the community. Um, so, in order to tell, one of my my goals in doing the evaluation was to understand why they did what they did, how they developed into sexual offenders. 
Um, and the same is true with the men that I've treated who viewed child porn. And in my evaluations, it was very important to me to see how much the offender themselves had come to understand about why they became, why they did what they did. Um, and so I conducted uh, clinical interviews and reviewed extensive records of their developmental history, their offenses, their treatment, number of other things. And, uh, um, you know, in terms of research in that field, the one thing we know, well, there are two things really that reduce the likelihood of reoffending. One of them is completing a sex offender treatment program. And in order to complete a sex offender treatment program, you have to know your, what they call your sex offender cycle. Uh, basically, you have to understand, you know, why you did what you did and what the triggers are, what the risk factors are, how to prevent it. Um, the other thing that's associated with a greatly reduced risk of reoffending is age. Uh, once men hit 50, the, the risk of uh, violent offenses, including a sexual offense, goes down. Uh, the risk at 60 and 70 is close to, close to zero. Um, but when I got to understand the developmental histories of these men, I came to see that their paths to sexual offending were not mysterious. There were... Um, the kind of abuse and neglect and, and trauma that they experienced was uh, uh, over the top in 99% of cases. And early on in my work, I, I was hit with the, 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 the knowledge that uh, there but for the grace of God uh, go I. I. I had no reason to think that I wouldn't be where they were if I had the early life that they had. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, we know that not all children who are abused become offenders, but a high percentage uh, of offenders have been uh, abused uh, or traumatized in, in other ways. Mm -hmm. um, so what's the relevance? So because I got to see how a sexual offender becomes a sexual offender, uh, and I, I sometimes uh, think that I could probably write the recipe to, to create, to make a sexual offender. Uh, my initial disgust and condemnation morphed into something else, something closer to empathy for them when they were before they became sexual offender, offenders. My empathy and understanding, though, did not mitig mitigate my recognition that they were responsible for their actions, uh, nor did it diffuse the anger that I felt when I learned what they did in their offenses. But it did make me realize that these men needed help, especially if they hoped to re-enter society and have anything close to a fulfilling, productive life. So, um, you know, in order for me or anyone else to not respond to these kind of horrific, um, uh, you know, crimes or actions, 
simply on the basis of, of one's gut feelings, understanding is crucial. Understanding the person toward whom one feels contempt, disgust, rage, fear, and hatred. And that understanding can only take place when one has a reflective distance from one's feelings. And my job and trying to do it well enabled me to gain, uh, well, forced me, I think, to have a certain distance and enabled me to gain a lot more understanding about the traumatic impact of severe neglect and abuse on, on, on these individuals. So I was able, therefore, to challenge the conventional wisdom that says sexual offenders are beyond help uh, or don't deserve help or should be punished more severely uh, than with prison sentences. Um, you know, many people's minds, I, I think castration or even execution would be the appropriate uh, response. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that's, uh, I think, uh, a, a bit about the, uh, uh, the, the relevance, uh, to, um, quar of my, my, uh, I, I came to be able to quarrel with conventional wisdom in our culture. And I think that for men who've done these things, who are deeply ashamed, who are condemned by society, for them to, uh, to, to grow and feel uh, better about themselves, obviously they have to take responsibility for what they did and to be able to empathize with their victims, but they also need to learn to empathize with themselves as children, and, uh, and they need to overcome the internalized cultural uh, derogation, devaluation, condemnation, demonization uh, of uh, of sexual uh, offenders, um, and that uh, that requires uh, uh, what I'm calling uh, the ability to uh, to 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 quarrel with culture and to have some. Uh, adaptive apartness. Uh, so I'll uh, I'll stop there. I see it's uh, three uh, three oh one. Okay, that's okay. Is there anything else you had wanted to to get to that we didn't get to? Um. Well, one other thing about that, I guess, is the 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 understanding I developed. Uh enabled me to respond to my patients with more compassion. Um, it would be very easy to, you know, just go with my emotional, initial emotional, initial emotional reaction of disgust or anger. Um, and a lot of people do stop there with, not just with sex offenders, but with you know, other people as well. Um, so it enabled me to 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 feel more compassion, uh, you know, as I said, especially towards themselves as children when they were uh, victimized. Um, and, uh, you know, this is, uh, I guess I'm talking really about my own professional growth, uh, but it's, uh, it was a, a challenging, 
it is a challenging thing, I think, for uh, uh, for for someone to uh, develop. Uh, and and actually, I wrote a a piece called the the challenge of viewing sexual offenders uh, as both perpetrators and victims. And uh, uh, talk about some of this and uh, with a couple of case examples. So um, yeah, I think uh, I think uh, that's uh, I'm ready to I'm ready to stop. Okay, great. And like I said, you're welcome back anytime. So if there's something else that comes up that you want to address or when your book comes out, or if you want to talk more about what it's like to be a forensic psychologist, I don't think I've ever had a forensic psychologist on before you. So that could be fun for people to hear about things like that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That uh, It's unusual for forensic uh, psychologists to also be psychoanalysts. Yes. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I know of, of anyone other than myself. Uh, so, um, yeah. So yeah, that would be, uh, that would uh, be really fun. A fun episode too, because they try to showcase like all the different things you can do in the field, you know, in such a broad field with so many different ways of working in the clinic, private practice, hospitals, teaching, communities, forensics, you know, there's like so many different things you could do. And, and, and it's always interesting too. I think most of the listeners are students and it's always interesting to hear kind of our journeys as well, like how we ended up getting into the field and, you know, how we ended up in the paths we ended up on. Because I know like for me, for example, I was like reading Freud and Young and wanted to become a psychoanalyst, but then I just went to this, you know, the grad school in my area and, you know, it was all like behavioral. <laughs> like, what is this? You know? <laughs> Like, wait, where's yeah. Freud? You know, <laughs> like, oh, yeah, that's, yeah. we don't teach that anymore. I was like, oh no. So then I had to like basically get a whole doctorate in stuff I wasn't interested in, and then go to extra school after that. You know, it's just like, wow. So wow. <laughs> Where was your, the 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 graduate school? Fort Lauderdale. I'm from uh-huh. Miami. Mm-hmm. So I just went to the Nova Southeastern University in Fort Lauderdale. Oh. I did work in the with a forensic doing research for one year um, uh, with Lenore Walker. And it was pretty fun to learn how to do all the assessments and everything. I think it made me a really good like report writer um, uh-huh. in that way. And then I ended That's up doing like rotations, doing like neuropsych testing, like my internship and my postdoc was like neuropsych testing and like, um, working with traumatic brain injury and things like that. So like very, very different. <laughs> and so um, later on, you went to New York Psychoanalytic to get your... Yeah, uh, I went from, yeah, I went from Fort Lauderdale and then uh, I got my first job at a university counseling center in California, but that was 2007, 2008. So then they cut the job after one year and I was like, oh my God, I just like spent all my money moving across the country and <laughs> I don't have a job. And then I was like, what do I do? And they're like, well, you can get unemployment. And I was like, oh my God, I just got a doctorate and you're telling me to go on unemployment. I was like, what is this? And then, oh, yeah, there was just no jobs in that area because it was like a small college town. So my sister had just moved to New York. She's a photojournalist. And I said, well, let me see if there's any jobs in New York. And thankfully, New York had jobs at least. So I got a job at uh, like a hospital, an HIV clinic. And then I went to psychoanalytic training like in the evenings while I was there and started private practice that way. Wow. Um, 
Which college were you, or which town were you in in California? Uh, I was in Arcata, so like very Northern California, Humboldt County University. Yeah. Yep, yep. Humboldt State yep. University. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, two things I uh, one I want to ask you about, and one I want to mention. Um, so, yeah, forensic psychology. When I tell people that I, you know, what I do, that that is usually the thing that people are most interested in. Um, whether it's they're people in the field or, or out of the field, so uh, I would uh, I would enjoy uh, coming back and uh, talking about that. Yeah, it would be great. So um, the other uh, the question I have is: Did you know uh, Efren Gonzalez? Oh my God, I love him. He was my my supervisor. <laughs> really? Yes, I worked in his private practice doing testing for him. Well. Um, uh, two things. Um, he was a very close friend of mine. Oh my gosh. Did he, he pass or something? You're saying was. Yeah. yeah. He died, uh, about a month ago. Oh no. I've been thinking lately. Oh, I have to get in touch with him and have him on the podcast. Oh, wow. Oh, that's so sad. I loved it. He was actually like my saving grace in that school because, um, uh, he he had been trained as an analyst, but he was working in the hospitals there, and he like still had this perspective of like looking at patients more psychoanalytically, and that was like my life. Like he was like my lifeline in that school. I worked at him oh. like under him at Jackson Memorial Hospital and at Camilla's house with the homeless population, and then I worked in his private practice. And wow, this yeah. is incredible. Yeah. Um, oh, that's so, so sad to hear that he passed. I'm too yeah. late. Yeah, he had a he had a uh, prostate cancer that uh, uh, metastasized, and he's been battling it for for some time, and really took a turn for the worse uh, um, within the last uh, six months. I I saw him in February. Wow. Um, he was uh, he was in bad shape, and at that point, it was pretty clear that you know he was he was going to die. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, uh, really sad. So he, he and I, and another, uh, guy named Alan, we did our internships, uh, together. Uh, there were three of us. This was at Waterbury hospital in Waterbury, Connecticut. It was one of the, the four, uh, placement sites for Yale interns. And, uh, we got so tight, uh, during that year, uh, partly because, the supervisors were uh, were so non, uh, I should say, anti-psychoanalytic. We'd all come from uh, psychoanalytic uh, programs or psychoanalytic uh, backgrounds, and um, they they subscribed to the uh, what they call the biopsychosocial model, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they they really uh, uh, were, were heavily into neuro neurology i i i uh like to say that they had neurocentric personality disorder um and uh um and so we we really bonded and stayed uh friends for the, i mean that was 1983 84 so we've stayed friends for 40 years and we would have reunions uh efren would come up to uh connecticut where alan lives and we'd spend a a whole weekend together. Oh my um, gosh. 
Yeah. And I, I, I loved Efren. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, a, a terrible loss for, you know, for me and for Alan, uh, personally, but, uh, you know, we had, we had a lot of great, uh, great, uh, times. Uh, so yeah, I'm, it's very, uh, you know, touching to, for me to hear you, to hear what you said about him and how, you know, it was kind of a saving, uh, saving grace for you. Oh my gosh. He was such a lifeline. I basically just like adored him. And I think he taught, um, he taught us like for the pharmaceuticals, like psychopharmaceuticals. And when he taught that class, I was like, who is this person? I love him. And I just basically like followed him. Like that's how I picked my, uh, my externship. I was like, I'm going wherever he is. (laughs) So I just followed him to Jackson Memorial hospital. I just followed him. Like that was it. It just like clung on to him. And like, he got me basically through school, you know, and then I'll send you my website on my little CV. I just pulled it up. It says like psychological testing assistant, private practice of Efron Gonzalez ID. (laughs) Yeah, from 2005 that, to 2006. <laughs> I, that is great. I, I look forward to telling uh, Alan uh, about this. Uh, I'm sure he'll be touched as well. Um, yeah, Efren was a, a deeply humane and uh, and and spiritual uh, per spiritual in the best sense of uh, of the word uh, person. And uh, you know, every time we we got together. Um, you know, it what comes to mind now. Uh, you're familiar with uh, uh, Martin Buber's uh, "The I Thou" relationship. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I felt like I had an I Thou relationship with him. It was so real, and we got to, we just got to deep parts of ourselves, uh, you know, uh, quickly, and uh, you know, um, so it was, it was so special and uh unusual in my uh experience yeah i mean he's totally foreign my way of thinking because i think you know he showed that like you can work in these hospital environments where you're supposed to just be very behavioral and but still have like so much empathy and look at people as more complex and not just like a bunch of symptoms to be eradicated you know like you're saying like don't have these knee-jerk reactions or or do exactly what you know you're told you should look at these people as and like really like look and understand people and their humanity and whatever you know situation that you're in or whatever kind of clinic you work in just because you're working like you know we were doing like consultation liaison in hospitals or working with people with kidney failure and different kinds of transplants and things and and with homeless population in Miami and you know so many of my my other supervisors you know of course you had to have several would be like oh just like you know fill out this worksheet and make them do this homework and whatever and it's like I'm not gonna give this like you know this man's like lost his job and like ended up homeless he's an old veteran he's like proud I'm not gonna like give him a worksheet with cartoons on it and like ask him to like well if you just like thought about things differently maybe you wouldn't be depressed it's like it's every reason to be angry and depressed you know like like look at people's humanity and don't just like yeah exactly yeah recognizing their humanness and uh and of course with some uh you know some clients that's harder to do uh than others because of their you know uh defenses and uh and you know the way they interact and so on but uh 
yeah that's uh that that's that's really i think uh kind of the essence of what i'm what i'm talking about here with uh sexual offenders um yeah so. and actually it also makes me think of you know when i did go to new york and work in a hospital i was so i think because i work with dr gonzalez i think i have to talk, call him dr gonzalez <laughs> he is my you know, supervisor um i think when i work with him you know he he never said anything bad about patients you know i went to the hospital in new york the supervisor there and the kind of team they were like make jokes about people and and it's just like uh you know like yeah just like you know and i understand it's like a difficult situation working in an aids clinic in new york and everyone was like so impoverished and it was like and we had so little funding and it was just like kind of bad situation after bad situation but like you know that's even more reason not to be making light of it or like not to be making jokes they kind of joke about people who like had memory problems or, or substance abuse problems and things and made light of things and I don't know I was trying to be like okay I guess that's how they're processing but it just felt so disrespectful and I think coming from Dr. Gonzalez and the way he always treated people with such humanity and had such grace and generosity and, you know, always take that route, you know? Yeah. This, uh, yeah, this, this is, this means a lot to me, what you're, uh, what you're saying. Uh, me so too. I love him. And I have been thinking about him lately. Like oh, I should call, should see if I can get in touch with him. I wonder if he had the same email. I've been thinking that like just this summer. So well, maybe he was in my head because he was, uh, you know, suffering. Hmm. Yeah, maybe. Well, this, you know, uh, other people uh, say this, uh, you know, uh, and something I try to remind myself, uh, don't don't wait. You know, if don't you're thinking wait. someone, do it, you know, because you don't know. Uh, you just you just never know uh, if you're going to get the the chance to do it down the road it's really true don't wait yeah so i've got some people on my mind like that now so this will don't wait help, help me yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Don Grief. For more, visit the main website, renderingunconscious.org, for links and more information. As always, huge thanks to Carl Abrahamson for providing the intro and outro music for Rendering Unconscious Podcast. You can check out all things Carl at his main website, carlabrahamson.com. And now the song, Conceive Ourselves, from the album of the same name, a collaboration I did with Pete Murphy, available at highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com as well as petemurphy.bandcamp.com. You can also find our music streaming on Spotify and other streaming services. Enjoy. The self-principle from which all magicians encompass, encompass into one glorious specter, an orb, an orb of facets ricocheting beams. They pierce our preconceptions, conceptions, dropping the pre so we can simply conceive ourselves.
whatever they feel they need, which they rarely do, really. Some seem to be out there, but each spark is a different spark. Each fire, different fire, although sex takes the connection. Great speed, all hemispheres beautifully lubricated, lubricated by surprises to the imagination. A femur can be attached to the hip and pelvis in so many ways. If dedicated to the living and loving memory of Peter Beard 